If you're a movie collector, you need Movies Anywhere. It pulls your favorite purchase movies from participating digital retailers into one central place. So you can finally say goodbye to scattered movie collections and hello to an organized library. With Movies Anywhere, you can watch your favorite movies on any compatible device whenever and wherever you want. Ready to grow and enjoy your digital collection? Visit MoviesAnywhere.com slash welcome and register for free. Registration with Movies Anywhere required. Open to U.S. residents 13 and over. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is, this is Elmo and I'm with my friend Joel. Hey man, can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Joel Furchis. I'm from the United States and I currently work as a teacher with at-risk children at a educational facility for children with uh, emotional and behavioral disorders. I am a PhD student in the field of psychology, and I do personal research, which I'm pursuing. Actually, I just got accepted into a course where I'm going to do a my dissertation on the topic of religious deconversion, meaning when somebody goes from being religious to being an atheist. And so I put a lot of research into that, and I present material in that currently. And, yeah, that's generally where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can I ask you about why you're a Christian, right? Like, what happened as a child? Were you raised in a Christian family? Did you have doubts at that time? Can you give us, a, I guess, like a timeline of, of how, of your past in terms of your Christianity? Sure. So like most Christians in the United States, I was raised in a Christian family. I'm what I call a, an early adopter, meaning that I never went from being something else to being Christian. I was Christian by default based on the environment that I was raised in. I went to a Christian school, which is sort of this isolationist idea where you you don't interact with the world outside of the Christian bubble. You just kind of stay in it. But in going to the Christian school, I got very well trained and familiar with uh, Christian ideas and the Bible and so forth. And then I uh, graduated from high school and went to a Christian college, if you can see the theme going on here. Um, and, you know, there I got a little more training in the humanities and in uh, a broader field of Christian research. Now, after that, obviously, I went out into the real world, if you will, and got a job and 
you know, started interacting with people outside of the Christian bubble. And at this point, you have to go beyond the sort of default Christian mode and go into things that sustain your belief. You know, so why am I a Christian? Because I was raised as a Christian. Why do I remain a Christian is the other question. Because once you get outside of that bubble, you have to figure out, is this something I can sustain in the real world? Um, and I remain a Christian because after examining it, it's the only viewpoint that I think makes sense of the world and of consciousness and so forth, what I'm sure we'll get into that. So, yeah, that's why I'm a Christian. Okay, but um, you haven't a- answered, I guess, the question that you pose itself. As, as it, it is that, why do you remain a Christian? Well... So I, I traffic, again, in the field of Christian apologetics, and so I interact with a, both atheists and Christians, and as a result, I've had to look into the reasons behind Christianity. I think that the two things which really support Christianity is, first of all, the universe really only makes sense under the idea that there is a transcendent sort of abstract that grounds reality, and based on things like consciousness and rationality and logic and so forth, it makes more sense that the transcendent thing that grounds reality is a mind, because those kinds of things only come from a mind. And so that's what allows me to have the confidence that there is something that transcends the physical universe that grounds meaning and purpose and so forth within the physical universe. So I'm fairly confident about that. Um, from an epistemology and ontology point of view. Now, why Christianity specifically? Uh, Looking into the historical and scholarly work surrounding the person of Christ, I can have a fairly high confidence that the resurrection story of Christ, if nothing else, is correct. And if there is a person who came to earth and claimed to be God and then rose from the dead, it serves as good evidence that his system of belief, what he was talking about, is the true system of belief. So that's why I select Christianity or remain a Christian based on the research that I've done. Mm-hmm. Would you say you would have had like a spiritual experience, you know, like uh, a transformative, spiritual, deep experience that only you can, you, you, like only you could have experienced in your life, like an event or some sort, maybe? So from the uh, field of the research that I do, uh, which is conversion research, what you're talking about is what we would call a um, conversion crisis, uh, or a crisis conversion, my bad. So uh, crisis conversion means it's sort of typified by the experience of Paul on the road to Damascus um, in this, this story about somebody who was not a Christian, and then there was this blinding light and the spiritual experience, and he you know, went from not being a Christian to being Christian in sort of a flash of light. I have never had an experience like that. Um, I don't recall having any sort of deep, meaningful spiritual experience, which opened my eyes and was a come to Jesus moment or anything like that. Uh, I, I experience deep spiritual meaning when I study and I come to, you know, I find a surprising conclusion that makes religion and, and God seem more real to me. Uh, In other words, all of my spiritual experiences tend to be intellectual experiences. When I have a really startling realization or my eyes are open to something that I hadn't seen before, that's a very spiritual experience for me. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that that, that seems interesting, I guess, because um, if for that's usually what we get from people who have been a Christian most of their lives, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. I guess, like, um, in terms of you know a conversion, you know, uh, the basic um, doctrine for Christianity, I guess, is the the gospel, right? It's that you're a sinner, and then you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're saved by grace, and all of that, and you repent. Have you had at least at some point in your life, maybe it was gradual or or something that kind of experience? I can see how perhaps there have been a progression of realization of, you know, the basic doctrines of grace and salvation and so forth. Um, I don't, again, remember any sort of instance or moment when all of that came clear to me and there was this deep, meaningful experience. Um, But that's, you know, again, what you're talking about is what they call a crisis conversion. You know, it's it's a sort of instant moment of realization where lightning strikes and you, you're a Christian suddenly. Um, but in general, what we find in conversion research is uh, what we call a process conversion, which is a gradual process that leads up to adopting the religious behavior. But people like myself, um, again, what I call early adopters, they never go through a conversion as such. We can't mark a moment in their life where they went from being not Christian to being Christian. Because when I've, you know, interviewed other early adopters and asked them when they started thinking of themselves as being Christian, they'll tell me something is like as young as age four or five, meaning that as soon as they started forming memories, they started considering themselves Christian. You know, and this is something I'd like to look into because conversion research doesn't really delve into these early adopters, as I call them, and how that process takes place. Um, now, most deconverts, which is really my specialization, people who go from being Christian to being atheist, are, are early adopters, which suggests to me that, you know, they never really go through the full conversion process. You know, they just think of themselves as Christians, and they never do what you're talking about, which is kind of move from this mindset into like a firm believing mindset. So in my own personal experience, I can't really see that progression, but I believe that what I have now is um, a firm standard of uh, Christian belief. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to get this out of the way first, right? So a lot of atheists, I guess, or people from other belief systems would look at someone like you who's been a Christian all their lives and has never been otherwise to be someone who has been like indoctrinated and can't escape this cultural mindset that has been implanted for to you. I, I'm, th- I'm not saying that, but like, how would you mm-hmm. respond to a, uh, an argument like that, you know, of you being this so- close minded per- person? So in, uh, when we do research and we, look, we, we measure religiosity, which is the sort of depth of religious devotion in childhood, and then, you know, do progressive um, surveys, you know, follow the people that we've talked to into adult life, there's actually not that strong a link between religiosity as a child and religiosity as an adult. Um, you know, if you follow the same person, there's no real guarantee that they're going to remain religious 
um, throughout their lives. And, you know, this is in, in my deconversion research, we find this, that practically every deconvert is a person like myself who grew up in the church, considering themselves Christian and so forth. And so at some point they reach a stage in their lives where they start to form their own beliefs and their own opinions and start to re-examine what it is that they believed as a child. And at that point, they form sort of a personal identity, which may differ from what they had as a child. And if you look at things other than religion, this is, this is true across the board. Whatever you're raised as a child, you don't necessarily adopt it as an adult as you begin to form your identity apart from your childhood. You know, you don't think of yourself as a su subject to your parents or your school or whatever you grew up with. You now have formed your own identity. You know, and everybody goes through that, that identity formation as they mature into adulthood. Do they bring their childhood standards with them? Yeah, a lot of times they do. But, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be believing the exact same things you did as a child into adulthood. So, yeah, I mean, you can make the, uh, the case for indoctrination, and I don't think that's necessarily uh, a completely wrong case to make, but it's not a guarantee either. Now, what we see with deconverts is that, yeah, they look back on their lives growing up and they think of themselves as being indoctrinated. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting, most deconverts, when they look back on their religious experience, they believe they were being lied to. Yeah, you could think about that. They believe that the things they thought at the time were lies, but the people who believe them aren't intentionally lying. At worst, they're mistaken, you know. They're not getting up there and intentionally indoctrinating you. They're just telling you what they earnestly believe. So I would say there's a difference between indoctrination and sort of instructing in what you believe. Let's take a cult, for instance. If you look at a cult, typically the cult is not so much about sort of these transcendent ideas as it is about the leader and what the leader can get out of the people under him or her. Um, so all of the spiritual things the cult is teaching are only there so that the leader of the cult can get something out of the people uh, he or she is leading, um, which is different than religion because, you know, if I teach my children, for instance, that, you know, there is meaning and, you know, they need to be virtuous towards other people and so forth, I'm not getting anything out of that. I'm just telling them what I believe to be true. Uh, whether or not that benefits me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I guess it is, um, you know, a case-to-case -case basis and you can't just generalize that every religious person was indoctrinated and is still uh, a Christian or still holding their beliefs because of that indoctrination, right? But um, in, mm -hmm. in terms of your case, right, I want to look at your specific case because if if you're someone who who's not really on the on the like the conversion crisis thing or on the yep yeah or so and when i look at your criteria you mentioned or i guess like you specialize in more on the intellectual aspects of christianity sure and and would you say that that's the specific reason as to why you're still a Christian? That you, you seem to get the most of the rational uh, answers from Christianity and, and not from other belief systems? 
When you say rational answers, I don't know that you can ask a question and then go to your religious system and get the answer from the religious system necessarily, unless that question specifically is about something within that religious system. Um, you know, and I, I would be an example of that. When I do research, I don't go to the Bible to do my research. I go through the scientific process. I, you know, I look at surveys, I look at other studies, I do my own research, and none of that goes back to the Bible. But then when I conclu make conclusions, it's consistent with the Christian worldview. And because of that consistency, um, but I also think that Christianity, the the general Christian concept gives us grounds for the type of rationality we need in order to carry out scientific data. I'll give you an example. If you were to look at practically any other contemporary religious system at the time the Bible was written, so the Bible's being written in, you know, let's call it 1000 BCE, um, and about around the same, same time the Babylonians are writing the uh, Epic of Hammurabi or um, you know, the, the Greeks are writing about Zeus and so forth. The thing that really distinguishes the Bible from any of those other mythologies is that within other mythologies, you have these gods and spiritual creatures existing within the universe and moving through the universe. They live on a mountain or something, and when they get angry, lightning flashes and their earth rumbles and things like that. So they're part of the physical universe. However, the Bible is written with a God that exists outside of the physical universe. He is apart from the physical universe. So often you hear these sort of arguments about, say, God of the gaps, for instance, that you know God is just used as this explanation for things that science can then uh, obviate over time. But that's one of the things that allowed early Christians to do science is that they had a system wherein the physical universe was separate from the creator of that physical universe. And so early scientists that were within the, that believed in Christianity were essentially doing what you would call reverse engineering. They were looking at this physical thing that they believe had some kind of purpose or meaning, and then they were examining it to try to get back to the purpose and meaning that was originally structured into it. Uh, reverse engineering, you know, an example of that would be when, um, say, a country gets a hold of the technology of another country they're at war with, and they've never seen this technology before, so they start picking it apart and seeing how it works. So they're taking this item, they can see what it does, but then they try to figure out how it works. The same thing is done by science. You know, we see things in nature, uh, that we can see how they operate, but then we pick them apart to see how they work. And so um, science makes good sense even under the Christian system, which is what a lot, why a lot of the early fields of science were founded by Christians. Mm -hmm. well, okay, so in, in terms of, I guess, science, right, you, you're, you also look at empiricism and other forms of epistemology. But specifically, would you say that you have a more of a faith faith based belief in Christianity, or is it purely because of you're looking at the evidence and it all indicates that Christianity is the right belief system? What would now by how, faith yeah. based? I'm assuming yeah. what you mean is that um, I think that it is true 
because it is true on its own merits. I don't use outside evidence in order to um, form the beliefs that I have. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So this idea that uh, we believe things because we believe them isn't necessarily consistent with belief formation. So for instance, let's say that, yeah, I grew up in church and I believed everything that I believed from the beginning, but I didn't just believe it on by default. I believed it because I was told it by people that I considered to be knowledgeable and authoritative. And that's most of early childhood there. It doesn't matter what kind of thing we're talking about, whether it's, you know, why the sun shines or why I should brush my teeth at night or why I should pray. You know, an authoritative source is telling me this. I have reason to believe this source because they have a job, they've put a roof over the head, that, you know, obviously they know things that I don't. And so there's no reason that I shouldn't assume that they know these other things. You know, it's, it's, to an extent, it's an empirical observation in that I have reason to believe that they are true. Now, like I mentioned, as you go into teenagehood, which, by the way, is when most conversion or deconversion occurs, you're starting to form your own identities and you're starting to question these authoritative sources that you've believed in the past. Again, you had a reason to believe them, and that was your belief formation at that time. And as you begin to question them and come up with your own reasons to believe things outside of just their authority, then you you kind of form your own identity, you kind of form your own ideas. And uh, that's, you know, we talk about teenage rebellion. Teenagers are kind of a pain in the neck because they're no longer the trusting child that believes you because you're a, a source of authority. And so there's a difference between the formation of a belief which in the case, yeah, in, in the case, in my case, I believed in Christianity because I was told by a source that I felt was authoritative when I was a child. So there's a difference between belief formation and the sustaining of that belief. You know, as you go on through life, you, you have to come up with different reasons to believe these things because you no longer accept your parents as being omniscient. You know, you, you start to recognize they're human beings as well, and they might be wrong about certain things. And so if you are to continue to believe Christianity, in my case, um, you can't tell everybody, well, it's because my, my, what my parents told me. You have to start coming up with reasons beyond that. And I've already given you one, some of the reasons that, I've, that I hold. Um, you know, there's this idea that the rationality of the universe only makes sense if you ground it in sort of a transcendent mind. And then there's the, you know, scholarly argument for the resurrection, which mm-hmm. I think is fairly sound. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So I guess that um, if you were to justify your belief in Christianity, I'm looking at your a- and I'm looking at your answer so far. I would say that you were you would establish, let's say, a deist a de- deist creator which has a mind, right? And then as having this God creator, you're, you're then looking at the specific religions that you could, that this creator could align with and that and you arrived at Christianity and then the, uh, you're going to defend the Bible and Christ's resurrection and a lot of other things that go with it, right? That's where your, your arguments go through and that's why you're a Christian right now. 
Yeah, and there's a there's an underground basis for that as well, and that is the consequence of believing in Christianity. Um, and so far as I can tell, if I were to find out I was wrong about Christianity, the consequences of being wrong are very mild, you know, because I live a fulfilled life. I live a life which is generally moral, um, regardless of where I get that morality from. So, and I treat others, in a way, so I'm not making a negative impact on others. I'm le leaving a life, living a life that's fulfilling to myself, and the life that I live is a, a productive life in the general societal uh, form. So the consequence of me being wrong is very mild. So in addition to having formed the belief, again, through sort of a trust in authority figures, sustained the belief through my personal study and intellectualizing, um, the consequence of holding this belief is, to, to as far as I can tell, there are no bad consequences. Now, if I were to, say, be a Shiite Muslim, and going around bombing people and so forth, there's a heavier consequence for holding those beliefs and then finding out that you're wrong. But if I were to find out tomorrow that I was wrong, I would have no regrets about the life that I've lived because the consequences have been good, not bad. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess I would find the, the consequences of your beliefs as irrelevant as to why you're a Christian, but okay, maybe we could take that into consideration but well uh, okay you're asking about the foundation why i believe that i'm a christian mm -hmm. i the consequences is for me sort of a safety net at the bottom because mm -hmm. if i don't if you were wrong the, right yeah. that this was this i'm not be afraid of me of being wrong and i'm the reason i'm not afraid of being wrong is that if i were to discover that i was wrong there would be nothing for me to regret mm-hmm Okay. okay. So, for instance, if you were to find out tomorrow that brushing your teeth was unhelpful to you in life, you wouldn't regret doing it because it didn't hurt anybody. It made no, there was no bad consequence for having that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. negative belief. Well, that wrong belief. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, Does I'm, that make sense? I'm, yeah, I'm guessing though that it, there's not much fideism going on or in your belief system because. Um, it, I don't know if you're a Christian just because you 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 like being a Christian and it's helpful to your lifestyle. That might just be a, I guess, a safety net, as you've said. But if it were to be the case that your present arguments in your defense for Christianity, let's say for a creator or an uh, or for the Christ resurrection or for the Bible, if someone were to present a valid current counter argument to all of those, would you stop be, being a Christian? That remains to be seen because there's a psychological element in that as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, pe people aren't 100% rational robotic beings. You know, there is an element of psychology uh, to human beings that sort of affects how our behavior is. Mm -hmm. And so if someone – I have changed my mind about things in the past that I was wrong about or that I think that I was wrong about when evidence was presented to me, but I don't know how – I would act in the future if that same thing were to happen about something as mm -hmm. foundational as my religious beliefs. You know, I might 
be able to bite the bullet and give up my beliefs. I might try to rationalize them. Both of those things happen, but it's not something I would be able to predict about my behavior in the future because it's not mm. something I've ever come up against before. Mm. Okay, but on principle, right? And on on the gra or the criteria you set for yourself while you're studying, or at least the intentions of why you're studying these intellectual pursuits and specifically for religion, psychology, and maybe philosophy, right? If, if you have found yourself and arrived at the conclusion, which is contradictory to what you believe, which is, let's say that you found good, valid arguments as to why Christ did, wasn't resurrected, would you change your views on principle, ignoring the psychological factors? Sure. So I've, I've got three stages uh, planned for the future if, if that were to ever happen. The first is if I was to become convinced that the evidence was against Christ or the resurrection, then that w I, then I would no longer be a Christian because it would be intellectually suspect to do that if indeed the resurrection did not occur. Um, but I would still be a theist because, again, the universe to me only really makes sense if grounded in a rational mind. If for some reason somebody were to convince me otherwise, the next step that I would take would be to be a, um, I'm blanking on the word. Shoot, that's too bad. It's a absurdist. There we go. I would be an absurdist, a philosophical absurdist, because that is the only view that makes sense besides this uh, theistic view of Absurdist by by your absurdist you mean like Sartre? Yeah, an absurdist like Sartre. And if I were an absurdist, I I have a good, I have a plan for how I would act and the things that I would do <laughs> under absurdism. Um, there there are some fun absurdist things that you know that I would shift to if I were to ever get to that point. So yeah, I've thought about it and I've thought about where I would go. And there's three stages. The first would be I would no longer be a Christian if the resurrection were to be or soundly disproven to me, but I would still be a theist because, again, the universe only makes sense to me under theism. But if for some reason somebody were to be able to present to me an argument that destroyed theism, I would then go to being a, an absurdist. And I already have my life planned out from there. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So it seems to me, though, that... Um if, if that were to be the case, on principle, the criteria you set for yourself in what you believe is purely just uh, you sound and valid arguments, right? So right now you're a Christian because uh, I guess most or all of the arguments for Christianity seem sound and valid for you and that's and also beneficial for your life as well, practically. And so that's why you take this position. Right. I wouldn't say all of the arguments, because there are certainly arguments that I uh, I would reject in favor of Christianity, but the ones that I you know I have seen arguments that have sealed my confidence in the truth of Christianity. Okay. Cool. Cool. So, um, I I want to break down like your specific arguments for a creator, and maybe give you okay. some counter 
arguments for those and and I want to see how you would respond right let's say for example um intelligent design would you take that argument as a uh, evidence for a creator I don't get into intelligent design because it's not my field of speciality and if I were to argue for intelligent design I'm sure that that argument could be easily countered by somebody who knows more than I do I try to stick with my own my areas of speciality. I think the argument from intelligent di- design is interesting, uh, insofar as the reverse engineering um, argument that I made earlier uh, for the rationality of science under theism. But you know, if somebody were to present evidence against the intelligent design, I wouldn't be able to defend it because it's not my area. Okay, but I guess like um, well, you are you do present yourself as a theist, right? Um, Correct. So, in terms of theism, what what are your main arguments as to why you believe it? And then I want to, can you break it down for me? Okay. So, the reasons that I believe it, which I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call them arguments because arguments imply that I'm trying to convince somebody else. I'm convinced because of the reality of abstract or uh, transcendent things like logic, beauty, um, love, justice, all of these things which are real, which are actual concepts, to me seem most reasonable if you ground them in a transcendent mind. Interesting. Okay, okay. So um, in terms of that, right? I guess then that you're looking at sort of a dualistic view of of reality where there there is this physical universe that we have and there are things that are real that are beyond it or that metaphysically exist which are things like love as you said or morality or or these I guess I would say like form platonic forms of some of sort it would you use that term i think platonism has touched on something um which relates to what i'm saying i would uh, i would tend to go more towards plato's idea of the good um being the sort of source for all uh standards and laws in the universe mhm okay so if if you're be, you believe in a in a deity right or a creator in on theism because you 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 seem to to not be able to deny the existence of let's say love right can okay. you define what love is and like what what is it what's its ontology is is it just merely social construction what is it to you like why do you find it this real thing that actually exists Okay, so if I were to have to define love off the bat like that, I would say that it relates to a valuing of other rational minds, moral agents, uh, above yourself in a sort of self-sacrificial way, that there is a value to other minds um, that merit your sacrificing of yourself towards those other minds. You know, in an ultimate world, you know, in a perfect world, 
you would be 100% devoted to everyone around you and everyone around you would be 100% devoted to you. And so unlike a individualistic society where you have exactly one person looking out for your good, you would be in a society where you had everybody looking out for your good and you looking out for everyone else's. And I would say that that is the model of a loving society. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you, um, I guess, like, um, tell me the other th transcendent things that you you I would you and that you would probably find as self-evident, like love. Uh, can you maybe an exhaustive list would be nice because I'm really <laughs> interested in this, right? For real, like I actually am agreeing with you, and this is one of the th reasons why I'm a theist too. But I would love to hear your side on it. Sure. So um, I am not a metaphysicist, so I'm going off of things that I, you know, have picked up here and there. One of the arguments that was really interesting to me, and this was when I was doing a study on atheists that converted to Christianity, and I was very surprised at how prominent this, uh, the aesthetic argument. Have you heard of this one? Yeah, I guess it's in terms of beauty, right? That there is an right, objective the, measure of beauty in the universe. Correct. And that it was strange to me because this was sort of an obscure argument in my mind that was relatively prominent for atheists that became Christian. And it's this idea that when you see something that inspires sort of, well, inspiration, something that's beautiful, um, the only way in which that can have any real meaning or foundation is if there is some transcendent um, standard of beauty. Um, and so if everyone hears Mozart and is equally moved by Mozart, there must be some kind of standard which is universal. One of the things that really speaks to me is language. So you could run into any person from any culture in the world and they would have a word for beauty that means the same thing as your word for beauty, such that there are these um, universal ideas, and we're not talking about the universal idea of the color blue. We're talking about the universal idea of something that transcends physical reality, like love. And every culture, every language across the world has a word for that idea. So it's a referential form that all language and all culture has a reference to. So the standards that exist independent of culture or individuals that everyone recognizes, and they're not physical. They're not a thing I can point to and say that and give a word for. So, you know, the universality of language across cultures is something that really stands out to me as an example of one of these transcendent ideas. Um, but I guess like so it's, um, it's really hard to convince other people with this argument because of the naturalistic uh, explanations that people might might uh, uh, express. Like for example, just you know the pro that language is just the product of our evolution and and constant cultural clashes and events uh, and stuff like that, or that the the our common standard for beauty might be purely biological and evolutionarily attained so i, I would find it really hard to i guess to say that 
it, it that beauty would be something that is universal be, because you know we it, people do believe that uh, that beauty or at least is sub, a subjective in in many aspects but there is this i guess like common threads of of standards in in across cultures but i wouldn't say it is i would it would be hard for me to convince people of the aesthetic argument okay so as far as the aesthetic argument i find it interesting i think there might be some merit to it but i don't think i would be able to defend it in the way that you're talking about with language on the other hand and that that's a separate thing for me translation would be impossible if all languages develop separately from each other and didn't have these universal reference. Now, I believe that languages did develop separately from one another. I don't think you could make the case that every single language goes back to a single language and that they're all just kind of variations of a single language. I think there are very different forms in, uh, in different languages. And yet, there are these universal reference that make translation possible. I can take any language in the world and translate it into, I'm sorry, I could take any text in the world and translate it into my language and get the same kind of meaning out of it. Now, there are cultural variations, things that get lost in translation, sure, but they still have universal reference that allow translation to occur. Okay, so uh, is it does it mean that you believe in God or a creator because of language, I guess? Well, in that case, I would call it a cumulative case. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I could make an argument like I just did from language. Yeah, yeah purely from language. They're, therefore course, yeah. God. Yeah, you of know, course I not. might be able to make that argument and say, therefore, a Platonic realm. You know, that there are these sort of universal Platon, Platonistic ideas that language that all languages refer to. And, you know, you can make the same argument either way, God or Platonism, just from that single thing, it's more difficult in my mind to make an evolutionary argument because there's some because evolution would in, indicate to me that just like you have a duck in one area of the world and a platypus in the other area of the world, you can see some similarities, but they've diverged evolutionarily from one another. Now languages diverge diverge in things like syntax and in the kinds of you know vocal noises we make in order to form the language uh, and in referring to specific cultural ideas, but they still have the same universal reference. Every language has a word for love. Every language has a word for beauty. You know, and, and these are, love and beauty are not physical things I can point to. They're abstract ideas. You know, even, even the word abstraction, that's a thing that every language has a reference to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so language love beauty what are what are the other transcendent uh, things y- that you find to be i guess like a, an accumulative evidence for a creator so i would take uh, law as one of these and here's what i mean by that um i like the if you're familiar with the um I believe this is credited to so- socrates but it was written by plato the idea of um of honor among thieves. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, point? yeah. Okay, so and the idea was that uh, 
you know, Socrates turned to one of his students and said, you know, could a group of thieves operate if they didn't have some kind of law organization among them? And so his point is that even lawlessness has to be fun has to have laws and organization in order to operate. You know, they have to sit down, they have to make a plan, they have to follow some chain of command or leadership. And if they don't do that, they're not going to be successful at the robbery. You know, it's this idea that there are standards and laws that are necessary for anything to function. And the fact that we have these sort of universal standards and laws in order for the world and society and individuals to function indicates that there is kind of this ultimate standard. Again, you could call it the platonic good that things have to orient onto in order to function correctly. And the further you orient away from this standard, the less functional you are. Well, I guess it, uh, some other, uh, if someone would say that, oh no, this is just, again, you know, evolutionarily attained. And it's not really, I guess, the only ans explanation that, is that this transcendent property is the is the reason for it, right? It, I, what, what would you say that it, evolution evolution isn't enough to for us to arrive at this complicated state of this? Well, up? as I understand it, mm -hmm. evolution is geared towards survival. Correct. Okay. Whereas what I'm talking about is is geared towards some sort of transcendent or transcendental um, standard, you know, that that has sort of a value beyond si simply survival. All right, you with with me so far? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you know the organisms that exist? The the only organisms we exist that we know of that have the maximum survival value to them. Maximal survival value. Humans, have, I guess? Have the, the most robust organisms in the world that we're aware of are uh, microorganisms. There are microorganisms that can exist within volcanic shafts. There are microorganisms that, you know, they try to scrub off spacecraft because they can survive in the vacuum of space at these high level intensities of radiation, and they can still somehow live on the hull of this satellite or space probe. Um, the I think they're called extremophiles. But these are the most robust life forms that exist. Um, now let me put it in terms of, you know, let me translate that into terms of technology. Let's say you have an iPhone in one hand and a pocket calculator in the other. And then you drop both of them from waist height onto the pavement. Which is going to survive that drop? The well, not the iPhone, of course. Yeah, the pocket calculator. Right. And how often do you have to stick a pocket calculator on a charger? Well, not never, I guess. <laughs> never. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I could, I don't have to replace my pocket calculator all the time. You know, I've had the same pocket calculator since high school, um, middle school. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so in terms of pure survival value, that pocket calculator way outstrips the iPhone. The iPhone is a piece of junk compared to that pocket calculator in its robustness, its capacity to survive, and so forth. But which of those two items are more valuable to me? Uh, the iPhone, of course. 
correct, the iPhone. And it's only because I have standards and needs and um, concepts, transcendent concepts that make that iPhone valuable. The value of the iPhone is not in its survival capacity, which is pretty uh, rare. Uh, it's in its functionality, the things it is capable of doing. The same thing is true evolutionarily. If, if we're talking pure survival, microorganisms are way superior to me for survival value. What makes me unique is my versatility, the kinds of things I can do with my mind. And the only re reason that humans are so um, successful in the field of animals is two things. We have an opposable thumb and we've got an imagination. And between those two things, we've managed to more or less conquer the world. And, you know, we're the only animal we know of that can look at the universe, measure the universe, and come to conclusions about how the universe functions. You know, Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible that I, ha I possess a mind which is capable of looking at the world around me and coming to real conclusions about how it functions. There's no other animal like that. But you put me in a volcanic shaft, I'm not surviving. That bacteria is. So, same thing is true of the iPhone. It has versatility. It's got the electronic equivalent of an imposable thumb and an imagination, which makes it value more, far more valuable to me than that pocket calculator, which can survive much more than that iPhone can. So I'm guessing that the, or from what I've heard from you, is that our, the, the complicatedness or the complexity of the human mind is something that is probably, would, is less probable from a product of evolution but more of a, an actual creator that and that can provide these transcendent qualities for us right it's more it's less valuable from a terms of evolution and more valuable uh from a the capacity for my mind to have a relationship and to comprehend transcendent things you know things outside of the physical universe um, it is a mind which is capable of having a relationship with a uh, immaterial mind, if such a thing should exist. So if there is an immaterial mind, it's going to value me as a rational mind more than it will value that extremophile bacteria. Um, and so the only thing that gives a thing value is a mind outside of that thing which imbues value upon it. You know, you can look at this in terms of capitalism. You know, an item, which is very valuable to capitalism, is only valuable because there are human minds that give it value. In the 1970s, people were paying a lot of money for pet rocks, which were just rocks with googly eyes pasted onto them. Um, and the only reason that they had that kind of value was because there were these individuals that were, you know, imbuing that value on them. You can see the, th the same trend on eBay. Certain items are extremely valuable on eBay one day and completely without value the next because there are minds that give them value. My value comes from an intelligence outside of it which gives, that va gives it that value. Okay. Well, um, in terms of the theism, I can see, I guess, a, a sort of a vague picture of why you arrive at 
uh, a god, a god creator. Okay, in, but in terms of Christianity itself, you know, you could believe any other thing or aspect of Christianity, but I, th- I guess the most essential for it that and even the bible says says it is christ's resurrection right if if christ wasn't resurrected then we, we're all just fools so what is your i guess the rational justification for why you believe in christ is it more of just the same thing with the rest of christianity or can you or at, at, if, if so can you break it down for us so obviously the foundation is what you just said. It's the resurrection seems it makes it reasonable. Um, but past the resurrection, there's an internal consistency to Christianity, which makes it more probable to me. Um, you know, if it were a system that had a lot of internal problems, um, then it would seem less rational, or at least a system that needs some revision in order to be rational. But the internal consistency, especially the more you study it, um, makes it interesting to me, if nothing else. You know, and that's one of the things that appeals to me about Christianity is its interest value. That there, you know, because of the internal consistency, there's always new things to discover about it that increase that consistency and make it a more um, attractive uh, system let's say. And so, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about Christianity is that no matter how much I study it, I can always find new things. But other than the consistency, I guess, um, I don't think that internal consistency would be, would, would be the only thing that would attract me to Christianity. Sure, that would be good at least you know, in terms of my preferences, but in terms of just proper justification as to why it is the truth, I don't think it, it it would that would be the case. Like for example, if I look at Islam, right, they they have a lot more internal consistency than Christianity would, and um, but maybe you would say different but from my observation they they dive into uh, jurisprudence and and theology much deeper i guess and they're 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 it's actually much easier to be a to be a monotheist in islam than to be a monotheist believing in a trinity right so I guess the only thing that would ground me f- to be a Christian is Christ's resurrection itself, right? But what would you say? Okay, well, I can't respond to the Islam thing because I don't know enough about Islam to, you know, make that argument one way or another. And that's one of the things that I try to avoid uh, in these kinds of discussions is to try to defend or address something that I don't have the knowledge about in order to do so. Um yeah. Yeah, but in terms of, I so, guess, yeah, like Christ's just... resurrection, that that would be the only answer. I. Well, I think that the Christ Christ's resurrection is the single thing about around which it's the hub of the wheel around which Christianity revolves. You could take away quite quite a bit, but as long as you can, you have that, then you still have Christianity intact, uh, as I like to put it. Um, if Jonah didn't get eaten by a whale, but Jesus rose from the dead, you still have Christianity. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so oh. why do you believe that? I guess like uh Christ actually did exist and what that did die on a cross and was resurrected assuming that the evidence what is is just the Bible or or maybe you you have something more that could be grounded with on a much stronger uh foundation well i mean if god were to exist it seems as if the christian god is what he would look like um because the christian god is a personal god and it's so personal in fact that he came to earth to live among us um which makes him a far more personal God than most other religious systems have. Um, but, you know, I mean, there is a more robust standard of love within the Christian God than other systems. Um, and one of the things I particularly appreciate about Christianity, and again, I, I will admit that I have not studied other religions to the degree that I would be able to make a strong comparison Um But again, and this is the – so most religions teach that you have to be virtuous in order to obtain within that religion versus Christianity, which teaches that you can't be virtuous enough, that you would have to accept the sort of grace and forgiveness that God offers in place of your own virtue. But that would make you virtuous. You know, it's it's this uh, idea of uh, sanctification or redemption that the the mere fact of you know being repentant of your ill deeds and being desirous of good deeds gradually transforms your character to make you virtuous, which is pleasant to me because if I were to discover at some point that Christianity was the wrong system. I still had virtue, which is the primary value in these other systems. You know, and as long as one has that virtue, one succeeds in practically any other religious system there is. So I'm not grateful, gra- greatly fearful of the consequence of being wrong. At any rate, um, well, let me let me put it this way: if you take any religious project in history and you give it enough time, it begins to look like the monotheism of Christianity. Um, For instance, Zoroastrianism. Um, So Zarathustra is in what would be modern-day Turkey or Iraq, and his story is somewhat similar to Muhammad. He goes into these temples full of different gods, and it's a very polytheistic system, and decides that this doesn't make rational sense, that you can't have multiple omniscient beings that that gets a little crowded and it doesn't make a lot of sense to the universe. And so he boiled it down to a single omniscient being with two natures. You had the sort of chaotic nature and the orderly nature uh, that sort of at war within this being. And this is how he explained, you know, evil and good and all was also able to make a more consistent being. Um, you know, Muhammad does the same thing. He goes into a temple and he finds, you know, this polytheistic system and he decides monotheism makes the more sense. And then if you go to Plato and then um, after him, Aristotle, they come from a polytheistic system and they realize that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
And so Plato comes up with this idea of the good, which is this transcendent. Yeah, but when you source. say when you say that Christian that these other religions start to become Christianity, that would that would only be the case if if they were post Christianity. But Zoroastrianism, Plato, they're all like pre Christian. I think you misunderstood what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Christian idea of a monotheistic God who becomes the transcendent source of value is uh, intuitive to the degree that all religions sort of, if you give them enough time, they kind of tr uh, transform or evolve in that direction. Okay, like you're saying that um, Christianity is sort of the, the epitome of this ideal belief system, right? That... Right. M most, uh, uh, yeah, okay. So religion is a human project. All people are born or grow up with this idea that there is some kind of external reality behind, beyond their five senses or that there is a transcendent, you know, an unseen um, mind. Now, this idea of an unseen mind could end up being things like a fairy world you know, that you have in sort of European uh countries and histories. It could be, you know, it could end up being the mythology of Greece. Um, just these, this general idea of there's things or, or a thing that exists outside of your perception that has intention. Um, but religion is sort of this human project to discover what that is. And so, you know, there are millions of religions over time that have kind of set a pumpkin on top of a tree stump and carved a face into it and said, okay, this is God. And then tried to figure out what that God is, you know, what's his nature. Uh, and if you give those religions enough time, they all sort of evolve in the direction of a mo transcendent monotheism. And so this is the template um, out of which you get Islam and Judaism and Christianity and uh, Zarathustrianism or Zoroastrianism. Um, and so the question is, if that's the template, if this is the one that makes the most sense, uh, which of these systems is most consistent? And I think Christianity is because it gives us a much more personal God and it gives a, it resolves a problem of monotheism. And that problem is this. If monotheism is both lawful and loving, you know, personal, let's say, then you've got a contradiction there because to be lawful, you have to punish everything, every imperfection. But to be loving, you have to forgive imperfections. And those are two things which exist in tension or conflict. Most religions resolve that by saying, well, uh, just be really, really good so that you don't get in trouble. You know, if, if you're good enough, maybe you can, you know, forgiveness isn't necessary. We can take that off the table because we'll, we'll uh, balance your bad against your good. And if your good comes out ahead, then you're cool. But the problem with that is that if it's, if it's a absolute perfect standard, transcendent being with it, that's absolutely perfect, then it can bear no imperfections. So this balance of good against bad doesn't make sense because that bad doesn't go away. But within Christianity, there's a resolution to that. You have in um, Deuteronomy, I think it is, uh, Moses makes the statement that, um, you know, the Lord is good for giving the, um, you know, the trans trespasses of whoever. And then it says, but he will no, by no means clear the guilty, 
and he will carry this judgment on and so forth. So he makes a state, two statements which are contradictory to each other. He says that God will forgive, but God will judge. You know, and how do, how can that be? But in Christianity, we have a resolution of that. We create there is a way in which a perfect God can both judge and forgive through the sacrifice of Christ. And in that sense, it makes a lot more sense than other any other religion to me. I guess, like coming back to the Christ resurrection answer, like, um, so is it? Why do you believe that Christ re- was resurrected? What, is it because the Bible said so, or there that there is no evidence otherwise, or is it that because there is sufficient evidence, even extra biblical sources, that Christ was resurrected? Like, um, if you were to be asked why you believe that. Because that is the, as you said, the hub of Christianity. What would be your answer? Well, I wrote a book about it, so it's not a uh, simple answer. But I would, uh, I, you know, just briefly sum up. I would say that you have enough consistency within the four Gospels to ferret out at least nuggets of truth within them. And the most consistent thing across the four Gospels is the passion narrative, the narrative of the death and resurrection. Um, There are criterion of embarrassment within them that makes it improbable that they would make up a story of a dying and rising Messiah. Um, And then you have the historical, uh, the verified rise of the Christian church out of uh, Judaism which really makes less makes more sense under a dying and rising um, Christ. And then there is uh, there are uh, prophes- prophetical significance to the death and resurrection of Christ, which you know makes a lot more sense of these prophecies. And of course, pro- if pro- if a person says a thing and then years later that thing happens, uh, this is more probable on. Um, on a miraculous um, level. So it gives some kind of miraculous authority to the scriptures. Uh, and then, of course, like you said, there's extra biblical sources that talk about this, specifically the rise of the church and the beliefs that the church had. Um, and so it's it's difficult for me to do a breakdown argument for you, but those are the just sort of the general nuggets of things that lead me to this conclusion. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um Hmm. That sounds very, I guess, narrow because, you know, it is like the center of your whole belief system. But I guess that there is, if, if that if that's the case, like you would, fr- coming from me, you know, that, um, that I would say that you're just someone who's not convinced otherwise. And you're already at this default that, Christ was resurrected, and there, there, it has enough evidence to, for you to say to be able to say that it is in fact what happened, right? I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, basically, what I'm saying is that um, you're someone who's convinced that Christ was resurrected because of the the current data, and you're not convinced that. And you're not convinced that it was wasn't what happened. 
Okay, I think that there is good reason to believe that Christ was resurrected. And I think that the consequence of being wrong in that belief is minimal. So I, I am comfortable believing that. I'm comfortable proceeding with that model of reality. And if that model were to be shown to be faulty, I would revise as necessary. Okay. 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 I, I wanted to ask you um, one last thing because we are over an hour now. And um, in terms of, you know, you did mention absurdism and that, you know, it, facing the consequences of Christianity and the, the, the entailments of being a Christian in your life. Like, what is y your pursuit in life? Is it knowledge as to why are you continuing to live? What, what gives your life meaning? You, I guess even within the Christian perspective. Okay, well, I mean, I continue to live because I have children and it's my duty as a father to raise them and give them the best possible uh, life that I can and foundation. Um, as far as the thing, I, I go wherever the wind takes me. Right now, I am focused on my research in deconversion because it seems to be bearing fruit and, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that I can do to contribute to the discussion. And I, you know, as a researcher, I remain neutral. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy giving the same kind of data to Christians, atheists, or everything in between. And I don't assume Christianity as I research. As, as any scientist ought to do, I remain neutral in the, in the study and discussion so that the conclusions I come to are true whether or not Christianity is. Um, but that's the thing I'm enjoying now, and that's uh, the I'm pursuing a doctorate in psychology in order to do that as my dissertation. Now, down the road, things might change, and I'll change pursuits as necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but one other thing, though. I, it, th this is something that I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, but um, in terms of, you know, be, because cre mainly Christianity has this, you know, as you said, has this love that is not in within other religions and belief systems and it is more personal so w would you define your faith or, or i guess your belief in christianity to have this personal relationship with god and do you are you on this spiritual journey as well how would you put it well i don't have a destination in mind. I think that would be foolish to do so because whatever whatever destination I might throw up, uh, I've, I know enough about life to say that uh, life can kind of kick you in the tail, put you on a different route, and you won't hit that destination. So instead, I do what I can at the time and I see where things take me. The thing that I find most meaningful in Christianity is more on the uh, it's difficult to, put, you know, I, I would say intellectual, but it's not necessarily intellectual. It's mm -hmm. the but study, you, the scholarship. You, but do you have like a prayer life? You, you, you meditate on the Bible, uh, Christian fellowship in church? Uh, my Christian fellowship currently is sort of restricted to the online community within which I function. Um, I am part of a team 
of Christian apologists, and I interact interact very strongly with them, and uh, we we get to have good discussions and things which interest me, and allow me to grow. Um, I do study, and you know I study those things which grab my interest at the time. And again, for me, the most spiritual thing is to be in the process of studying and to find a thing that I'd never saw before, which increases my understanding or opens uh, my reality a little bit more as to what is being said um, in the text. And I've changed my mind multiple times over the years as I've attempted to be intellectually honest as I study. So it's this ongoing journey of trying to understand that drives me. Well, that, that this is really interesting for me. And, um, well, Joel, thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome to have you on the podcast. And if there's anything that you would want to promote, like, um, what is the Christian team going? Is it called the rate ratio Christie? And do you have any YouTube <laughs> channels and stuff? So I uh, I did briefly work with Rashia Christie, but no, the group that I work with now is called The Mentionables. And, uh, you know, we have a website. It's thementionables.org. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thementionables.org. And, uh, you know, our most active forum currently is our Facebook page, which is The Mentionables. Uh, we also have a Twitter feed which is Mentionables 1, or at Mentionables 1. And we have a podcast that we regularly do, um, the Mentionable Podcast. We uh, we actually do most of our um, podcasts now on YouTube, so we do regular week uh, streams on the weekend, uh, which are live streams on the Mentionable YouTube channel. So, yeah, there's lots of ways to get a hold of the Mentionables and to get a hold of their material. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's been great. And um, I hope to check out the, the mentionables. And uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be um, successful. Bye, man. Yeah, uh, make sure you always put the V in front of mentionables because if you just put mentionables, you're likely to get women's lingerie. <laughs> okay, okay. Bye, bro. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Give your heart some love with circulation-boosting bioactives proven to improve blood flow for better oxygen and nutrient delivery. Boost circulation from day one for better cardiovascular performance that keeps improving over time. Try Cocovia Cardio Health Supplement, available as a capsule or a powder. Visit Cocovia.com today. That's C-O-C-O-A-V-I-A.com and use coupon code CCV20 to get 20% off your order. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride.